0: So in this talk this evening, I'd like to give you a practical way to work with emotions, and especially difficult emotions. We don't have so much trouble with our uh, pleasant, wonderful emotions, but because much of what fuels and informs our thinking, and probably all of our discursive thinking, is, um, is the emotions... To find a way to work with them, it can give us a more mindful relationship to thought as well as to strong energies in the body. The longing to be rid of difficult emotions is universal and the stuff of great art the world over. And artists find a way to be with them. This is from Shakespeare, from Macbeth. And Macbeth is making a kind of plea to the doctor who's been observing his wife, very troubled, Lady Macbeth, and wants her, he wants the doctor to fix her, of course. He's saying, basically, Doctor, do something. And Macbeth says, um, I'll go slowly for those of you who are not native English speakers. He says, canst thou not minister to a mind diseased, pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet, oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. I think we all would like this about now. So Macbeth asks the doctor this question, and the doctor says, therein the patient must minister to himself. And this is both the good and the bad news of mindfulness and loving kindness practices. First, the bad news that no one can do it for you, that you have to do the work yourself. One of my favorite New Yorker cartoons shows two couples sitting in a living room and and one couple turns to the other and says, so this work on your marriage, are you having it done or are you doing it yourself? (laughs) You know, this is something we really wish for. And no matter how good the teacher, no matter how good the doctor, no matter, eventually, And in this matter, the doctor understood that what was troubling Lady Macbeth was um, what we would call a spiritual matter, not a medical one. Eventually, the patient must minister to herself. And so how to find a way to minister to ourselves is, of course, the subject of the whole retreat, but especially this talk. The good news is, if you work it, It works, inevitably. And the work we do here in retreat to strengthen, to clarify, to release the self from suffering, to free the heart from our demons and whatever holds us back from full-on life and love. That's what we want to do. We want to use whatever will enlarge our capacity to be fully present. And to be intimately present with the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, the intensity of our human life, the experience of being born, the experience of dying. What is the one thing we can say about all relationships? You can say it. All relationships they will end, just as we do. And one of the things that definitely hinders our ability to stay with and stay present is fear, our inability to tolerate the rawness of strong emotion. And we need practices to help us connect with this aspect of our humanity. Um, practices that can help us get intimately acquainted and familiarized and, uh, and open our minds and hearts to the way things are so that we can carry on and grow into the fullness of our humanity. This is from, um, quoted from a book called The Many Faces of Grief. On our farm, we have a row of maple trees that illustrate a mysterious process. Many years ago, these trees were used as fence posts for the stringing of barbed wire around the pasture. Now, 50 or 60 years later, it's possible to look at those trees and observe the way the life process shows itself in adaptation. In some places, the trees fought against the barbed wire as a hostile agent, and here the trees have long and ugly scars that deface the bark and inner structure of the trees. In other places, the barbed wire has been accepted and incorporated into the life of the tree. Where this happened, the barbed wire left no mark on the tree, and all that shows is the wire entering on one side and exiting at the other. It's natural to wonder what makes the difference in the quality of a tree's response to injury. What was there in some trees that made them injure themselves by fighting against injury? What made it possible for other trees to be able to incorporate the injuring object and become master of the barbed wire rather than its victim. So with mindfulness, we're exploring ways to release ourselves from a certain kind of struggle and resistance to experience from what Wes was talking about Last night is just the grip of our self-centered thinking and uh, focus on the survival of the self and how to locate ourselves in a natural process, mysterious natural process of, of adaptation, of physical and mental evolution. Mindfulness evolves through these four foundations that we've been studying together, um, through the body, feelings, the mental states that you've been with today, and the wisdom that comes to understand how, how it all fits together and works um, in us, the evolution of our own nature from mitochondria, single-celled organisms, to us and in this study we see how the personal and impersonal processes are are really connected and that's what I want to show you just how the particular experience and it doesn't matter how crazy how stuck how unpleasant but the particular experience um, of your emotional life can connect you to a vast field of awareness, this universal life of all worlds, and the four steps that can help do this, we use the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N, the R stands for recognizing, the A stands for allowing or accepting. The I is investigate, but I actually use intimate or intimacy for the I. And the N is this non-identification with experience, not making it a story about who we are, but instead understanding its nature. So these four practices, at first we do them a little clumsily, very sequentially, one by one, Um, and then when you get some practice, they all just flow together, and they can happen pretty quickly in a condensed moment of release. I'm going to go through them with you, one by one, and um, and you can practice as you listen, just trying them on for size. Um, it doesn't have to be some, you know, really horrible emotion that you're facing, but just seeing what it's like to recognize a feeling. And and this is sometimes not so easy to recognize what we're feeling. Often our feelings are hidden under repetitive thought loops that are kind of our our mind's way of Protecting or defending against feeling that might seem hard to bear, but actually it's more painful to be caught in the looping, obsessive, repetitive thinking than to simply take a breath and let that attention drop down and sense what the feeling is under them. Sometimes obsessive planning can mask anxiety or fear. In order to do this, you have to feel confident that you can meet that feeling. And out of that confidence, we begin to discover there's a whole range of um, information that's available to us through the emotions. And that our emotions, as a source of information for us about our life, about which way to go, if we have a decision to make, um, this kind of intelligence, um, Dan Goldman, years ago, gathered research to show that this emotional intelligence is actually even more important than our intellectual or cognitive skill. So first we recognize what's here. Just feeling a specific emotion, where it is in the body. And if it's hard to identify actually what's being felt we can always recognize the flavor of an experience, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, or just neither. We can we can always sense that. Now, seeing or recognizing isn't... it's not enough in itself to change anything. And often it's frustrating because we can see We can see things so clearly, but it doesn't seem to change anything to see them. But it's the absolutely necessary first step. If we aren't aware, if it's outside of awareness, there's really nothing that we can do. So this first step of noticing what it is, if it's, um, for me right now, like just a little nervousness is too strong, but just some feeling of um, fluttery feeling in the chest, uh, a little bit of tightening, and just recognizing, oh, this is maybe a little bit of nervousness. Just naming has some power, the power of noting, of connecting the attention to the actual experience. It might be heartache, tightening in the chest, sorrow, whatever it is, that first flash of seeing, that's mindfulness, um, is a deep, direct knowing of that moment of experience. In the seeing, there is only what is seen, said the Buddha when he was teaching Baya, who was desperate to receive teachings. And the Buddha was actually on alms round when Bahia asked for teachings about what is this? What is life about? What is the nature of it all? What is it? Please teach me. And the Buddha said, no, you know I'm really um, on alms round right now. And he asked him again. And the Buddha was very polite and courteous, of course, being the Buddha. And... Uh, <coughs> explained again, but there was a tradition that if you asked three times, the Buddha would answer. And so he, okay, sat down and he explained the simplicity of perception, of mindfulness, of just seeing what is without adding on all of our interpretations and, uh, you know... uh, whether we like it whether we don't like it all our creative imaginative associations the branching proliferation of thought that we call papancha that great word and it was good that he took the time to teach Bahia because you know who knows if Bahia had like a foreshadowing or fear or whatever but I think he was gored by an oxen shortly after receiving that teaching. Um, so it was really good that he got it before he died. Some ter- something terrible happened. I think that was it. Do you remember? Yeah, that was it. Um, so if you have a sense of urgency, spiritual urgency, trust it, okay? You never know what is going to happen. And on a lighter note about this recognition, uh, I have a favorite New Yorker cartoon that illustrates this. Um, I, I wish I had a big slide to show it to you, but some of you may know this cartoon and some of you have heard me tell it, but it shows two snails talking to each other. And the snails, you know, they have this shape, their necks like this and then there's shell round like that. And they're standing and talking to each other and then there's this other shape very much like the snail right the curve and then the body um, to the side and one snail says to the other I know it's a tape dispenser but I love her anyway (laughs) so sometimes seeing it doesn't really fix anything but at least we see And that's the R of RAIN. The A, we could make it be awareness, appreciation, uh, acceptance. But acceptance in the sense of allowing. And allowing what is already there to be known. And uh, simply because it's there. For 25 years, this quote was on the wall of my psychotherapy office. Uh, when I was doing that work, a quote from Nisargadatta, and it says, By being in alert attention, by observing oneself with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, simply because it is there, we allow the deep, To come to the surface and enrich our life and consciousness. This is the great work of awareness. It's there, so what kind of, whatever it is, so what kind of relationship are we going to make with it? So, this is a very big, very broad, very inclusive, embracing, acceptance of the many kinds of emotions that visit our hearts. We allow ourselves to, if not welcome or embrace what's arising in each moment, at least to let it be, to not struggle, to let it be not in a passive way but it's it's actually very active because it's a choice to that instead of living in the shadow of should be or shouldn't be this way or the um, more different better kind of experience we'd like to be having uh, when situations or circumstances or feelings arise that don't match our expectations of the way things should be, um, either based on our past memories or ideas about the future, what's supposed to happen. And they often don't match in some way. We experience an automatic reaction of physical constriction, disappointment, anger, frustration, um, and fear. And this resistance actually connects us more to the thing we're wishing would go away. The problem we, what is it? the That which we resist persists. Um, but it's true. The more we resist, the more power it gains. Um, and denial is a very passive way of resisting. What so? And then getting angry or aggressive. Um, and fear, too, are more active forms of resistance. But... Arguing with reality is depressing, makes us anxious, and uh, we rebel and get stuck, and we can't really see past that stuckness. Um, This is another New Yorker cartoon. It shows a man, and he's very well dressed in a suit, and he's standing tall over a cat, and he's admonishing this cat, you know, with his finger, finger pointing. And he's saying, never, ever think outside the box. Um, and, yes, the litter box, right? And so, you know, just letting it be actually gets us outside the box. The box of our struggles with things. Um, just moved things around so hold on a minute I think I'm going to go back to the way they were because I can't figure out where to insert the thing I took out so um, so someone asked a question um, about how do you deal with just this flood of thinking the torrent of thinking thinking, 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 thinking thinking and uh, it's And they said, you know, it's so much easier to get swept away and caught in the content of the thinking than it is with the breath or a sound, even an annoying sound, like someone repeatedly sniffling or something like that, uh, or the sensations in the body. It's just so much easier to get lost in thought. And this question comes to us over and over again in meditation, it's central to it's central to what we're doing and and so the buddha when he was asked this question he was asked how dear sir i love that how dear sir did you cross the flood and the buddha said by not halting friend and by not straining i crossed the flood And aren't you glad the questioner doesn't leave it at that? He says, but how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining you crossed the flood? When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It's in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. So he's describing that middle way of wise effort. He's describing that equipoise uh, and balance of equanimity. He's describing knowing the wise distance to be from our suffering. You know, if we get too close, we just drown in it. But if we back off too far, we've abandoned ourselves, and it's exhausting. So by not straining to get past the unpleasant moment, to hurry by and rush to get it over with, or to get really busy to avoid it, and it's actually possible to get really busy even here in retreat. Some of you may have discovered that. I. You know, I have to go do my hand laundry. My socks are dirty. I need to wash them by hand. I can't wait to to wash. I I don't have enough socks. And when will I have time to wash and dry my hair? And I actually need to also get down to tea and then get back in time for Qigong. And how can I go for a hike before dark? And I need a nap, too, because I got up really early this morning. It's exhausting. (laughs) And so to not halt and not strain to just be present, to make the effort to not linger or worry or hurry. It's the kindness of a whole different stance. Um, It's a way of a whole different way of being with our strong feelings, recognizing what's happening, and paying attention with this attitude of allowing, of accepting, of non-judging, and of kindly interest, too. Kindly interest, that's the I part. We're not quite there, almost. This is from The Flight by Theodore Rethke um, in The Lost Sun. He says, At woodlawn, at woodlawn, wood I heard the dead cry. I was lulled by the slamming of iron, a slow drip over stones, toads brooding wells. All the leaves stuck out their tongues. I shook the softening chalk of my bones, saying, Snail, snail, glister me forward, bird, soft sigh me home, worm, be with me, This is my hard time. This is my hard time. He recognizes and accepts it. Once I was visiting, this was probably almost 40 years ago, I was looking for, she's one of the first women, maybe the first woman to receive transmission in Zen, um, Kenneth Roshi and I wanted so much to meet her. And I went to the house where she was staying and I was told that she was resting and I should wait in the kitchen. And so I sat in the kitchen and I waited and I waited. And of course, you know, I looked around. At first I was meditating, but then it got really long. So I looked around the kitchen and over the, doorway there was a calligraphy that said acceptance is the gateless gate. And I waited some more, did a little more zazen, an hour passed, hour and a half passed. I had a long time to stare at that calligraphy and reflect on it. gateless gate. It's invisible. You can't see it and yet you can Feel it when you cross that threshold. You can feel yourself drop into. It's just a movement or shift in the mind and heart. It's subtle but unmistakable. And that difference can be the difference between heaven and hell, uh, between peacefulness and agitation, um, between fear and disappointment and a freer, more fulfilled life. So this gateless gate of acceptance or allowing is the threshold we have to cross to live a true and authentic life. They never came and got me. I never got to see her. So I tried a different, I went to a Zendo where they were ha- but she had a headache. Again, the same thing, I waited and waited. I really felt like I was you know, outside in the snow, um, but I did never get to see her. The I, the intimacy, something so intimate too about that poem, Worm Be With Me. This is my hard time. Um, this is from Rilke. He says, I love the dark hours of my being in which my senses drop into the deep. I've found in them, as in old letters, my private life that has already lived through and become wide and powerful now, like legends then I know that there's room in me for a second huge and timeless life." So when he can really drop in to his depth, the depth of his being, and he, he says the dark hours of his being, uh, when he allows himself to do that, he discovers his connection to something much bigger. And this is the I, the inquiry, the interest, the investigation, the intimacy with experience. It's like the the Mary Oliver poem that Jack referred to about the butterfly. The butterfly, don't love your life too much, and then vanishes. And where does that butterfly vanish? You know, she vanishes into experience, so intimate and close to experience that there's really no separation. And once we understand, I mean, it's hard to do, but at least we understand this direction of. Not straining, not halting, not sinking, not rushing. Finding that middle way, finding that place of balance. Even if it's a really slippery place, you know, like walking on an ice ridge. uh, We're always falling out of balance one way or the other. Um, We learn to do this in the care and in the presence of another, of somebody that we trust. D.W. Winnicott, wonderful old British pediatrician and psychoanalyst, talks about the capacity to be alone, the capacity to minister to ourselves. And he talks about it as a deeply relational capacity that comes from being alone in the presence of another. And that's, in that, you know, he talks about it being the mother. It could be any parent, any caregiver who's who's very present, who knows how to be with a baby and a small child. And keep that wise distance. And not, you know, I mean, most of us, he's talking about ordinary capacities, not things you have to go to 10-day Vipassana retreats to learn how to do, but just... When a baby cries, you know, we don't generally go, ah, you know, and drop it. We hold that baby. And through that willingness to, through that being held, the willingness to hold and the experience of being held, uh, so much safety, um, so much stability is possible when the caregiver doesn't freak out. We're our own caregivers here, Um, and yet that sense of the presence of another, the presence of each other, and we've been here long enough together that we can start to feel the tenderness and the kindness. People holding the doors for each other, people just helping each other in tiny ways when they see the need. Um, We sense Oh, some people might really irritate us because of this or that or the other thing. But, but underneath all that, um, we sense the connection, and the connection is one of caring. As um, Paul McCartney said, in my hour of darkness, she's standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. So with recognition, and acceptance, there comes that safety that provides um, enough steadiness for us to to let it be and to find that capacity to look deeply, to investigate, to be interested in exploring, to enter the the deep waters and see what's there. This is a story, it actually has all the the recognition, the allowing the intimacy and the end which will come to this is a story about Alice Walker how she was able to transform a powerful experience of shame and self-hatred and um she tells this story in, I think it's called In My Mother's Garden, the book. Um, I can't exactly remember, but I'll find it. She tells of a time when she was um, she was eight years old, and she was a tomboy, and she was playing, and her brother, um, she got hit in the eye with a pellet from her brother's BB gun. And um, when they took her to a doctor, they... Actually, waited a whole week before taking her to the doctor, and um, he, you know, of course, he kind of chastised them for waiting so long, and it it scared it scared Alice a lot because he said, "Oh, eyes are sympathetic. If one eye is blind, the other will probably become blind too." So right away, she was terrified. But then, in addition to that there was a scar on her eye that was just this big glob of white on her eye. And she writes of herself at that time as an eight-year-old. She said, now when I stare at people, which I used to love to do, they'll stare back, not at the cute little girl, but at her scar. For six years, I do not stare at anyone because I do not raise my head. She starts doing really poorly in school for the first time. She has nightmares about suicide. She becomes scared to go to school and her classmates starting to fight with her. And she talks about how by the time she was 12, she was burying herself in books um, as a way of keeping others from seeing her eye because the white... Uh, cataract was still so visible, and she hated her eye, and she despised her eye, and she railed against it. At 14, she got to visit her favorite brother, Bill, and his wife in Boston, and they understood her shame, and they understood and took her to a doctor who Uh, was able to remove the scar tissue, and uh, what remained was a small, bluish kind of crater um, in her eye. But with that white blob gone, she really experienced a new freedom. And when she was reflecting on her childhood trauma and shame, she said, since I was eight years old, And blinded and scarred in that eye, I daydreamed not of fairy tales, but of falling on swords, of putting guns to my heart or head, and of slashing my wrists with a razor. But then she says from this period she started to really observe and be patient. Um, She didn't feel like a little girl anymore. She felt old before her time. And Because she felt she was unpleasant to look at, and she was so ashamed, she retreated into writing stories and poems. And then later, she tells this story. She says, I'm 27. My baby daughter is almost three. And since her birth, I've worried about her discovering that her mother's eyes are different from other people's. Will she be embarrassed? I wonder what will she say? Every day she watches a television program called Big Blue Marble. It begins with a picture of Earth as it appears from the moon, bluish, a little battered looking, but full of light, with whitish clouds swirling around it. One day when I'm putting Rebecca down for her nap, she suddenly focuses on my eye. Something inside me cringes getting ready to protect myself. All children are cruel about physical differences. I know from experience that they don't always mean to be, but I assume Rebecca will be cruel. She studies my face intently as we stand, her inside and me outside, her crib. She holds my face maternally between her dimpled little hands. Then, looking very serious, She says, as if it could possibly have slipped my attention, Mommy, there's a world in your eye. And then gently, but with great interest, Mommy, where did you get that world in your eye? Crying and laughing, I ran to the bathroom while Rebecca mumbled and sang herself off to sleep. Yes, I realized, looking into the mirror, there was a world in my eye, and I saw that it was possible to love it. That in fact, for all it had taught me of shame and anger and inner vision, I did love it. So in connecting with this very particular experience, there's a connection with something universal a connection with love. One yogi from a past retreat was practicing metta for a whole month and discovered that she could dissolve all her difficult feelings into loving and kindness. And she was overjoyed, and she imagined that from this day on, metta would fill her heart, and she'd never be reactive again. She was overjoyed, really, just, It was so powerful. It felt so real. And she'd be sitting in the dining hall, her heart just filled with metta, overflowing, just radiating it to everybody in the dining hall. And then she described what happened when she saw somebody take an extra cookie. (laughs) And the sign said, one each, please. Suddenly, flooded with judgment. And to her dismay, you know, this just fall from the grace of metta to the hell of judgment. The Buddha taught there is profound peace in letting things be. And sitting there in the dining hall, awash with disappointment and despair, her metta kicked in, and just as suddenly she found that she could simply Hold both of these experiences in her heart. She found that middle way that Jack was talking about this morning, midway between happiness and dismay, just sitting there right in the middle of the experience and letting them peacefully be. And they could actually peacefully coexist in the same heart the unique stream of her personal story about her goodness or badness, uh, that river of her particular suffering that we can all identify with joined the wider river of all human life. And this is how it is to be a human being. This is how it is. This is the end It's natural. This is our nature. With mindfulness, there can be a kind of open reflection on the personal and the universal at the same time. How does life or the Dharma unfold in me, as me? This is life in the form of you. How does my heart and mind understand things? How does yours, how does your presence and awareness allow you to stay with experience? To use your mind to tune into the body and to see how an emotion can be felt in bodily sensations. How it generates thoughts and, and how thoughts generate emotions. Um, as we note what we're aware of. What are you aware of right now in your body? Contraction, ease, boredom, interest, sleepiness, aliveness, brightness. Noting all this and how it's changing for you. And then staying with the shift and noticing the new feeling that comes. And then noticing the doubt Impermanence is really good news at such moments. And then just softening into the whole experience, understanding that the content of any experience, of this experience, it's our awakening when we're present with it. It is our awakening. And when we can be with it this way, with some mindful awareness... It's so soothing, what Sylvia calls the startled heart, just letting the heart be less defended and paradoxically protected by this courage to turn toward, it's it's so counterintuitive really, to turn toward a difficult or strong emotion and explore how it becomes a bridge to this second huge and timeless life. Just one more quick story. I years ago um, was going through my hard time, a divorce, and I was really heartbroken I hadn 't seen my first Zen teacher, the Korean Zen master, Deans Ni, for many years he had been living in Korea, but he would come back maybe once or twice a year, and I happened to be in Boston again when he came back. Uh, although I had just moved here. And we met at for lunch at a Korean restaurant um, on Prospect Street in Central Square in Cambridge with some of his other students. And there we were. He and I were sitting on this red naugahyde bench together. And I just had tears rolling down my cheeks just to see him again and just all the sadness I was feeling and i couldn't help it and he he took my hand and he just held my hand in his he didn't look at me or anything he just held my hand nice and tight and then he whispered under his breath weather w e a t h e r i almost didn't hear it but then i did And it made me smile. And it is weather, you know, it is weather from the larger perspective that he was holding for me. And we do this for each other at times when we can't. We hold that larger perspective for each other. It is impersonal from that perspective. The waves of emotion are just that, like the rain breezing through, blowing through, and what a relief to see it that way. Such a relief. And you know, if he hadn't been holding my hand and being really connected and loving in that way, if he had just said, oh, weather, it would have been such a different experience. You know, very dismissive. And, but the two together, the personal connection and then the bridge into the vast, impersonal truth. This is from Mary Oliver. She says, look, I want to love this world as though it's the last chance I'm ever going to have to be alive and know it. Sometimes in late summer I won't touch anything not the flowers, not the blackberries brimming in the thickets. I won't drink from the pond. I won't name the birds or trees. I won't whisper my own name. (coughs) She's talking about being that still. One morning the fox came down the hill, glittering and confident and didn't see me. And I thought, so this is the world, I'm not in it, it's beautiful. She was so quiet, she wasn't touching anything. Even with her mind naming, enjoying nothing, just not doing anything. And she was so quiet and non-touching that the fox didn't even see her. She could just uh, let all of that summer life be in the great openness and stillness of her heart at that moment. When we practice these steps of rain Recognizing, allowing, or accepting, which is in some ways the hardest. If you've got those first two, you're really good to go. And then the I, becoming intimate, investigating, and that non touching, you know, that non identifying as I, me, mine, just seeing this is the nature of being a human being. The waves of feeling wash over us. Uh, The rain blows through. It's like weather. When we can break the chain of just automatic, mindless projections and stories that create that sense of separation and just sense how the world exists for us when we're attentive and open and can let it be as it is. This is nature. There's no need to make it I, me, or mine. And then the process begins again with emotions that arise in relation to whatever's being revealed to us. To what we're seeing and then slowly, slowly we begin to see this is the process and this is the gift of a longer retreat. You get to see these cycles and see how the process um, It's just an unending process of life, something being born again, appearing. And it gives way to something else. And then that something else changes and passes away, doesn't it? And then something else is born. And this process is both intimately personal and hugely impersonal. And we don't have to identify with either the personal or the emptiness side of things. It's just what's true. So when we're not afraid to enter this stream of experience fully with our whole heart and mind, our loving awareness, and cross over to the other shore, when we can do this the way the Buddha taught, we find what um, the French novelist Albert Camus called he said, In the midst of winter, I found an invincible summer. In the dark hours, he found what? He found the steadiness and reliability of his own heart, of his ability to minister to himself, uh, to whisper words of wisdom and, and let it be so let's sit for a moment together